Welcome to the Call to Action Podcast, where we bring you incredible people and even more incredible stories with discussions and topics about what it takes to sacrifice everything to overcome hardships and failures to achieve success. Our guests heard the call. Now it's your turn. When we were in the, you know, in the throes of the of the power set story, um, I saw it as a failure, um, and I still see it as a failure. We were trying to be the company that beat Google. You know, I deeply respected Google. I wanted to build a search engine. I wanted to build a big company. That's what I want to do. I don't want to sell companies. Um, I want to build a big company, and I want to create my own culture. I want to revolutionize, you know, how people think about companies and products. Um, the fact that we sold uh, Microsoft to Microsoft for $100 million should be told to other founders as a failure story, because it was. We failed to raise financing. We didn't have enough money to actually build an index large enough to be a legitimate search engine. We only built enough to actually index Wikipedia, and then we ran out of money. Um, So we succeeded in building a search engine that was more accurate than Google for a certain type of uh, searches, for natural language searches. But we failed to actually build a company that did what our dreams were. And we had to sell it to Microsoft because they were the only company that had enough money to actually fund it because it cost so damn much to do the method that we had. And the 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 story of the end of you know PowerSet where we eventually sold to Microsoft is not a joyous story. It was a rough story. And um, there were moments in it that were beautiful and there were moments in it that were horrible. Um, I was... Very much, Barney and I were at each other's throats at the end. Lorenzo felt caught in the middle between me and Barney, and that wasn't that wasn't fun for him. Um, you know, we had Peter Thiel on our board and Charles Moldau on our board, and I don't, I'm not even sure if those two ever talked. You know, and and uh, it was um, the right thing to do to sell to Microsoft to build a a search engine that now does help billions of people. Microsoft did a great job in making sure they treated the employees of PowerSet um, really good, but it felt like hell uh, when we were going through it because we wanted to build a big company. We wanted to build our own culture, our own company, our own thing. And uh, so it's wildly kind of weird. Like, like so many people come to me and they like, I get asked to speak or like, I I I go to a couple of events where my friends are like, oh, there's the founder of Bing, and I'm like, don't ever fucking call me that, because I was a co-founder of PowerSet, yeah, and that's what I'm proud of. I'm proud of what we did there, but I did not create Bing, and um, I am proud of what Microsoft did and how they treated the team and what they eventually did. I, you know, I don't think they used as much of, of what we could have as we could have done had we built it ourselves and gone on our own. But this notion that uh, founders, like, throw parties when they sell the company and it's all, like, you know, I think founders who want to flip companies act that way. Right. But founders who care deeply and passionately about what they're building, I went through a very tough time. 
uh, during during when we were contemplating it and afterwards. It was a very rough moment uh, for me. Um, so yeah, like when you're in the when you're a founder and you're beginning to talk about selling your company, it's weird. You feel like you're selling out your team is what it in a way, yeah. you know, because you're like looking around at everybody like, do they want to work for Microsoft? You know, a couple of these people have said some negative things about Microsoft over the years. <laughs> I'm not, you know, and then Yahoo's also was bidding on us, you know, and Google was kind of maybe thinking about it. And I'm just like, e like, and I like look around. I'm like, there wasn't. I don't think there was a single PC in the office. Um, oh my god! And uh, <laughs> yeah, poor Microsoft. Yeah, it's still that way today. I've always wondered in a large acquisition, how much do founders actually walk away with at the end of the scenario, like PowerSet? You don't need to give exact amounts, but there has to be a lot of hands to grease before it's off to the real estate agent for that oceanfront mansion. Yeah. Um, I think it, it, it. the answer with anything like that is it depends. So if it's your first startup versus your fifth, you know, on your fifth startup, you're going to be a lot more savvy about, you know, protecting your equity maybe a little bit more, how you raise money. You, you can do it more carefully. And then it depends on how much success you have in any given startup. So if you're if you blow it out of the water right away, you're gonna you're gonna have higher higher valuations, less dilution, so you'll retain more. So I've heard of founders that have more than fifty percent. You know, when they sell, I've heard of founders that have fucking nothing. Um, and you know, uh, you know, PowerSet wasn't my first company, and it wasn't famous. And so, you know, just to give people a sense, you know, at the same stage that Famous is in um, as PowerSet was in if I went, you know, if I if I normalized the time frames of, you know, the stages of the company, I have five times more equity in Famous than I do, than I did in PowerSet, but I had a pretty good equity stake in PowerSet, not spectacular. So after that goes down, most people would probably be wondering why you'd be in a bit of a fit of depression it sounds like after that happened what uh you went on to write about an essay called cult creation can you talk us through where your mind was and and what the reason was uh writing about that scenario yeah i think that having closure um is really important and so while we were in saint martin and i i only spoke stench um so I, i was by myself for quite a bit because uh, I really couldn't talk to anybody. Um, so I decided to write down all the lessons that I learned. Um, I had some great uh, teachers uh, during the time of Power Set. Peter Thiel, who, you know, uh, is, you know, can be polarizing some of his views, but is also brilliant. So I tried to take the good things I learned uh, from Peter. I learned from... Uh, a little bit, uh, Luke Nosick, Kenny Aury, and the people at Founders Fund. Um, things I learned from Bill Keating, um, and and really try to codify them in an essay. And so I, I wrote that cult creation essay uh, in I, I, I think it was one or two beach sittings. I wrote it on the beach in Saint Martin, um, and then I just posted it for myself. Uh, on my blog that had exactly zero followers and it was the only thing on my blog and I just posted it just to you know like when you write a letter to yourself 
it was it was like that. I just wanted to write down like I did learn something, I did accomplish something. It wasn't a complete failure. I will learn from these things and I will rebuild and I will start again. And I posted it and then like the next day people started sending me emails like going, "Oh my god, your your essay's blowing up." And I'm like, "Huh?" And it was number 1 on Hacker News and it stayed number 1 for like 2 weeks. That's and next thing you know, I'm like, I, I, I remembered uh, Vinod Kosla called me. He's like, Steve, I would like to talk to you about your, <laughs> your, this cult you are trying to create. What are you doing? You know, and I'm like, I'm like, that's my terrible, terrible, terrible impersonation. Uh, I'll give it to you. That's not what he sounds like at all. I try to make him sound, you know, important, and then I completely fail. <laughs> um, and this essay just took off. And all it was is like I'd, I'd spend a paragraph talking about a lesson learned and what was the, the scenario in which I learned it and said – I wrote it for myself and it ended up a lot of founders read it and said, hey, this is like very truth-talking sort of stuff and it has lots of spelling errors and mistakes. And then I rewrote it recently I, and there's both versions now in my Medium account. I personally think it's the only startup playbook uh, an entrepreneur – needs to read to really if they're in the passionate they're not the flip entrepreneur but they're the passionate one that really wants to see this thing through to the end i honestly think because we both read it and it really it sends there's certain moments when it just sends chills up your spine it's just so real and raw and i really appreciate you writing that Um, yeah yeah i learned a lot from because i had lots of anxiety when i wrote it i was literally panic attacking you can feel the the rawness in, yeah. in the sentences it's it's I, truly amazing as i do with a lot of things i turn that into a positive i guess um so there's something that i do now uh that's really weird um i have anxiety or or pan everybody has fear of something right yeah uh, i fear of flying um, so sitting on the tarmac is like where I'm like losing my shit. Um, and that's different than shitting Twinkies. This is just literally losing your shit. And uh, I now, uh, on purpose, uh, so I've always been a writer to myself. I always write letters to myself, like like the cult creation. And now every time I'm on the tarmac and I'm having an anxiety attack, I write an essay to myself about a topic. And the wow. writing you get when you do that. So I have a whole book of shit I've written to myself. And they the should titles, be called On the Tarmac. Uh, <laughs> titles. Uh, the title I have of that notes is called Defective. Um, uh, and, uh-huh. you know, it, it, the raw, when, if you can actually, actually put yourself in a panic-inducing moment and then write an essay – just it's an amazing thing to do I, I don't you know do it carefully uh but that's that's some, when some real fucking honesty comes out oh yeah you know i'm i'm from sedona arizona and i've seen my fair share of uh the wrong kind of cults growing up mm-hmm. um how have you been able to hire a cult-like team you know in the traditional sense a cult is where an individual or group pretty much gives the founder or the the leader all of their possessions, uh, whereas in they they buy in that way. Whereas here, you're creating a culture where you're paying them to also be a part of it. And in the traditional sense, I think that coincides a little bit with the the theology. But you've managed to create some really badass teams um, throughout your career. Can you talk us through how to create the ride or die member while also paying them to be a part of it? I think there's some dichotomy there um, yeah. that I'm very interested to learn about. 
I think that, that culture emanates from the founder. So if I am anxious, my team will be anxious. If I lie to myself, the team will know that. If I... Um, this, if I'm vicious and abusive, it will affect the team, and they will be vicious and abusive right down the line. Um, and I have uh, – uh, it, it, it is incredibly important for everybody that's listening to this podcast to know that I have absolutely fucked up nine out of ten times in attempting to create a culture. It's just that every once in a while I find a gem, and I, and I keep it, and then I, I make mistakes – every day in culture related things but I've learned that culture starts on day one and if you can codify it in and actually put action to words um, you know like I, I don't know if you guys are listening to Ben Horowitz or the, the, the new stuff he's saying where you, your, your culture is what you do not what you say and I live by that and so if if I've learned to not just use words like, oh, we, you know, we value trust or we value, you know, empathy. That's a favorite one of the day. We actually codify it into things that are empathetic, things that are trustworthy types of things. Um, you know, so when we say like we treat our engineers differently, it's not words. Uh, we actually pay our engineers commission at Famous. We don't pay salespeople commission. We pay the people who built the fucking product the commission. Um, when we say when we say, "Oh, it's it's tough to live in the city. It's expensive." We don't we don't just say that. We created the first living wage in startups, and no matter what your level is or what the market rate is for your salary, we never pay anything other than twenty percent above poverty. Even even when every other startup in the valley is paying office managers and QA people and junior marketing people, even sometimes well below poverty. Um, so I make sure that we never, ever, ever have a cultural word that's just a word. We always have to put action right next to it. Um, um, and so there's there's examples of that in every day of every walk of everything that exists uh, inside of Famous. Which brings us to the latest and greatest evolution of Steve Newcomb. Can you tell our listeners how the road to Famous began and how you and your co-founder, Mark Liu, came up with the idea to build a digital design studio? I think Famous um, began with uh, a lot of fuzziness. Um, so when I go to create a company, um, there has to be a bunch of things that are true for me to say, like, I want to go do this thing. And I think the first starts with passion and, like, what am I passionate about? What, am I, what can, you know you know, the, the, the pain minus meaning equals anxiety, you know, how do I make sure I have meaning uh, to, to be able to go through all that pain and not have too much anxiety? Um, and what I do is I sit down and say, like, what am I passionate about? I, you, know, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm passionate about music. I'm, I'm passionate about design. I'm passionate about art. It's usually somewhere in the artistic field now. Um, and this is like the fifth inc incantation of Steve. You know, I've, I was also passionate about search and voice recognition and things like that. But now it's 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 mostly artistic type things. Uh, but within that field, um, there's lots of things you can do within design or art or music. And I start with passion, but then I go to logic real quick. Um, so I reverse engineered it. You know, I learned a lot through the Breakfast Club. 
So you go right back to all back to those days. And I'm like, well, let's see. Here's a simple equation. I need money. Other people have it. Do they want to give it to me? And how do I put myself in a position where they want to give it to me? So say, you know, I went out there and I said, well, I like music and I like design. I like photography. I like lots of areas of art. And I have lots of relationships with VCs because I simply did this breakfast club thing years ago. And then I started startup. So I had amassed relationships enough to simply say, hey, can I go to lunch with you or can I have a coffee or a tea? Most of the times it was 15-minute coffee, right? you know. Um, it was not like every VC gives me an hour-long lunch. It's usually a 15-minute coffee. That, and that's plenty. And, you know, what I went to them and says, like, hey, here's here's six areas that I think are interesting. What do you think about these areas? And I didn't try to pitch a startup or say, like, hey, whatever you're investing in, that's what I'm going to go create a startup in. But it's more conversation about, like, hey, you guys see futures and markets and you guys see these things. I only see passion. I only see what I'm interested in solving. Um, can you help me find the intersection of those two things? Because if I have a passion in something, but there's no money to be had, and I need money to raise in that area, um, it's 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 stupid to try to start something. So you either have something that that you're passionate about that doesn't require venture capital, and you can bootstrap it, or you realize, oh, this does need money, so it better be a match with what they're already investing in. Mm. And it just so happened, like, I'm, I I love Photoshop. I love Illustrator. I love Sketch. I love so many of these tools. Um, but they all fell short for what I wanted. I wanted to go all the way to production because I didn't want to code. I mean, I knew how to code, but I didn't want to code. I My passion was in design. So I'm like, what if there was a tool that, you know, just actually was live the entire time you're working in it and it was generating a progressive web app or a video or whatever I wanted, it would be producing it live as I was designing. But it felt like sort of Keynote meets Sketch meets Photoshop. And um, so I would check some ideas I had in music. I would have had ideas in photography. I had ideas in design. I had ideas all over the artistic world space. Mm. And I heard definitively from VCs that they they hated the music <laughs> space <laughs> they were like no not interested um they hated uh photography uh, they hated most of the areas that i loved um except for design they're like we think design is going to get disrupted in a massive way we think that um adobe has the potential to be moving too slow and not seeing the market and the market's going to change and maybe adobe doesn't see it um, and there's going to be an opening, as great as Adobe is, and it's favorite design software in the world, you know. Um, we think there's some things they're not seeing, and there's going to be an opening for some new, incumbent, new, new people to come in there and take on the incumbents. And, and I was like, wow, okay, so you think there's going to be money for design? Uh, and they're like, yeah. So I went to VC after VC after VC after VC. And what I found is every VC was saying the same thing. Hmm. And it's funny. You could triangulate it that way. And they also told me other things that they thought were red-hot spaces that uh, was a total snooze fest for me. Um, but going there and saying like, so I either have the option of maybe bootstrapping a music company 
right, and doing doing a new type of sampler or a new type of digital audio workstation, or raising VC money and going after the design space. I'm like, okay, those are my two areas that I think actually are real opportunities. Which one do I want to do more? And then I began the second thing. So I decided to design. Then I'm like, all right, next thing is find a co-founder. Um, I'm somewhat technical. A lot of people think I'm some brilliant engineer. I'm not. I'm, I'm much more of a product person, design person that is an absolute danger to the coding world. Um, but I know engineering and I know architecture and I know what's possible and what's not. But I always, always, always have a super strong coder partner. So I began looking and I always go, you know, I want, I want new. I want someone that's disruptive, someone that's not going to accept the way the world it is. So I always go, I always demand young there as much as I can. For PowerSet, it wasn't Barney, it was Lorenzo. You know, Lorenzo was my super young, brilliant engineer that I wanted to partner with. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, for Famous, I started at UC Berkeley. And I always start with donating my time and volunteering. It's the great, you know, great way to pay it forward, and it pays you right back. So I volunteered, doing lectures to engineering students and lectures to business students. You know, engineering students about business, business students about engineering. At UC Berkeley, which is a grand total of a mile away from my house, and I said, sure, I'll start judging some of the hackathons, and I'll look for people there. And there's this one kid that was beyond super socially awkward. And nobody wanted to partner with him. And he was winning every hackathon, like, while not even trying. And I was like, there he is. Um, and uh, prior to that, I had done all sorts of crazy things. I sent an email out to the U- UC Berkeley engineering uh, students, and I said, hi, my name is Steve Newcomb, starting up a new company. Who wants to line up and try to be my co-founder? Um, and I had, like, 50 kids apply. Wow. But the way I found Mark is in the hackathons and he's just socially awkward with people and was like awkward to talk to him but I'm not I like I love talking to people like that I'm and they're comfortable talking to me like we jam like that's my that's my like I my I'm the bumblebee to that flower yeah. you know so I start talking to Mark and we just start enjoying each other's company and we I'm like let's just start coding together on like whatever and we ended up building the periodic table, which has become this famous demo. It was the demo I used to raise money. And we just said, let's um, have stuff whizzing around in 3D in a browser in ways that are just entirely unexpected and prove that you could do Adobe inside of a browser. And we did it. And next thing you know, the VP of engineering at Apple is showing us on the main stage of WWDC. Uh and saying, hey, famous guys, like, I hope you fi- fix your battery problem. And then all of a sudden, like, everybody wanted to give us money. And then we were invited to TechCrunch Disrupt. And then it was, like, just me and Mark and uh, this guy, Andrew De Andrade. And next thing you know, we'd raise 26 million bucks. Um, and it wasn't because of any presentation. Right. It, was a, it was the demo and, the, and a few of the right people in the world seeing it. And we had 100,000 people sign up for Famous just on that little demo. No advertising budget. We didn't raise any money, didn't ask for anything. And so when we finally did raise money, I, I was like, well, we have 100,000 pre-signups. And, you know, any investor is like, what? That's, that sparks some interest. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. Um, we got Reed Hoffman to invest, uh, the, the founder of LinkedIn. 
uh, Naval Ravikant, uh, founder of AngelList, and then Naval gave me his original office for AngelList. That's what we're in right now. Oh, wow. Did you guys know That's that? That's some history. No. Uh, this was... Uh, I did have, read that somewhere. We have five paddocks, and one of them was AngelList. The one you're in right now was Brit of Brit & Co.'s old living room. Wow. Uh, so this was Britain Co.'s uh, a beautiful spot to be. Um, so we, um, you know, coded for, God, six months in an abandoned Korean Baptist church with no heat before we ever raised any money or did anything. Before that, we were in my basement. Um, so we wanted to make sure we had something demonstrable, a piece of thing to show people, like, look, this is it. And then we came with 100,000 signups and that thing and then raised money. We were on that list. And also for our listeners, you know, go check out this demo today. Uh, even back in the day, I remember it was pushing 60 frames a second on super modest hardware. You know, the, yeah. the iPhone 4, I think it was at the time. Remember, you know. And building that early momentum seems to have been something that just kind of naturally came. Uh, fundraising initial stages, it sounds like it just due to the hard work, the grit, which is kind of a commonality between successful entrepreneurs is that hustle factor, the grit, the the hard working and just being, um, as you said, passionate about what you're doing. Can you tell us the strategy where the shift on raising money, I think that's a top hot topic, especially around now where we are in, um, in the tech scene. Everyone's trying to raise money, raise money. But the strategy, I think, is really where it comes into play. Could you hit on some of those strategies that you did when you had to go out and hustle for it? Yeah, I mean, 99% of it is the setup and not the pitch. Yeah. Um, so um, I avoid no's like the plague. I don't want anyone to ever say no to me. Um, and so I am so much preparing for the pitch that just like in a boardroom you want all the you already want to know where the votes are going and there's no surprises in a boardroom you want to, that thing's already done before you enter the room if you don't already know you're going to have a yes before you enter that room then don't go in the fucking room and i've done it many times where i'm like i think i got a yes so i'm going to go in there and i'm like oh fuck i don't have a yes and it's never good to get a no because VCs talk to each other and you get one VC saying, Hey, have you heard of uh, famous? And then they say, yeah, we passed. And I felt, you know, pray to that exact same thing in famous because we, we pivoted and then we got a whole bunch of no's for a while. But the way we did the A and the B in famous when we had all that momentum is you want to have an elevator pitch. It's so fucking crisp and clean that everyone's just like of course I'm going to invest and my investor pitch was I'd hand them the iPad and what was on that iPad was originally a periodic table but by the time we got to A Mm -hmm. I rebuilt Facebook in Famous the native app but in Famous Uh, and I said here's 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 uh, and I had an an iPad and and an iPhone and I'd be like here is this and they're like why are you showing me Facebook? This is boring. Um, I'm like, it's the native app for Facebook, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, no, it's not. It's completely fake. It's completely all on the web. And I did Twitter, 
and I did we did Spotify, we did a whole bunch of things like that, and I just hand them that. And I said, Oh, by the way, Reed Hoffman's an investor, Naval Ravikant's an investor, my co founders are power setter investors. And I just start naming off all the people involved in this. And oh by the way, we have a hundred thousand users. And oh by the way, if you want to see the original video, you just type in Hello World three D into uh, YouTube and you'll see the original YouTube video where we filmed an iPad one with one percent battery floating objects around 60 frames per second and I'd be like I'm done like you can decide whether you want to invest that should be enough like let's talk if you're interested and I and I did this in in as humble a way as possible I I sometimes when I retell the story it sounds much more bravado than possible it's really just like hey these are the facts this is where we are I'm not and then I and then I would specifically pick my VCs and say like look I'm not really pitching anybody else when I raised my Series A, I picked two VCs that I deeply respected, which was True Ventures and Javelin, for my A. I really wanted a good, specific VC that was focused on A, that knew how to do A really well. Um, and then in B, you know, I, I wanted to choose a, a VC that did B really well. And in all of these cases, I only ever talked to the founding general partner of the fund. So with Javelin, it was Jed Katz. Uh, with Insight, it was Jerry Mur- Murdoch. And I learned that through the Breakfast Club. I had learned that if you're talking to a founding general partner and you're going through tough times, you're likely to get much more support because they are the founding general partner of that VC. Mm. If they're maybe a junior partner, maybe a first-time partner, they're going to have nerves and get nervous and maybe do things differently than a founding general partner who is seasoned, mm. just like a seasoned entrepreneur is different. So I'm like, I don't want any noobs on my board of directors. Um, And so when we went to Javelin, we already had a lot of momentum. And then one of the other reasons I picked uh, uh, Jed is he's a graduate of UC Berkeley, where I was a senior fellow. So he knew all the teachers I was working with. I'm like, yeah, go talk to the teachers. They all know Famous. Um, And... um, you know, when I met Jerry Murdoch, I did not pitch 60 VCs. I, I literally, at Series B, I only pitched Jerry, and I was done. He, he gave me a good valuation, said he wanted to be a good partner, said, here's the support I'll give you, and I'm like, good enough. And so this, this notion that I hear people doing, like, roadshows where they're, pit, you, know, pit, you know, having, taking a term sheet and going shopping with it, mm. you got to have a relationship of trust uh, with your board and if if you're dating someone yet you're shopping yourself around while you're dating them like how can that other person really trust you yeah and it's kind of the same with vcs like you should build that based on trust and trying to go after the highest evaluation you should be going after who's going to be your best partner and so i try to do that as much as possible i um, mean peter teal really beat that into us at power set if anytime me and barney he caught us optimizing for evaluation which which we did a lot uh he would you know he would chew us out he's like this is not the right way to build a company it's the right way to maybe you get rich not the right way to build a company and i really took that to heart and i still make mistakes on it and have it at famous um, where we had you know quite frankly, ridiculous valuations when it was just me and Mark. Mm. And I actually have now corrected that myself, uh, actually since the last time I saw you guys. Really? I, I, I personally reset the valuation of the company so that it was more accurate to be where it should be. And I'm not sure I've met another founder that's ever done that 
on their own accord. They're usually forced that. in some way. Yeah. Um, and I, I enjoy accuracy. It makes me feel comfortable. It, it's not, it's to me, if I'm not accurate, I'm living a lie. And so, uh, you know, I, I am very critical on myself and the valuation that I think famous deserves. And so, you know, I make sure that our valuation is appropriate for where we are and the stage we're at, and if possible, low, so that we remain attractive for future investors. Um, so we went through it all. We were super hot, had crazy valuations through A and B. Then we had to go through a pivot, and then everybody hated us and thought we were dead, and they loved writing stories about, you know, oh, my God, look at this disaster. And frankly, I think TechCrunch only likes, likes to write either unicorn wonder stories or disaster right. stories. And, and I we were had the rare ability to be both and maybe three times, you know, we, right. we, we were a unicorn, then we fell on our face and Can you we're, on we're wildly quickly? now becoming a unicorn again. Well, the, the, Just the, the falling on my face bit. Sure. Sure. Um, the pivot, we'll call it. Well, I... First pivot. I pivoted away from my passion. As I said, my passion was art. Um, and we became wildly popular very, very quickly. And um, the board thought there was a better opportunity in open source uh, because at the time Docker was happening, at the time Meteor.js was happening, 3JS, mm-hmm. um, Facebook React was happening, Angular 1 and 2 were happening, Node was happening. I was on the board of jQuery. I was on the board of Node. I was the largest financial individual backer of Node um, and jQuery, I think. Um, um, I, I gave quarter million to both. Uh, wow. But I'm not an open source guy. Uh, I, I believe in it in terms of I'm glad those things exist. Therefore, I help them. But for me, for art, art and open source, are kind of, that's kind of a weird yeah. marriage. And the board was pressuring me saying, go do open source. You've got, you know, you guys were part of the early engineering. We had a lot of engineers like, oh, my God, I want to code like famous codes. Yeah, that's right. And so we did this little thing where we released famous JS and we let people showed people how we do this coding. It was like, how do you get 60 frames per second on a freaking iPad one with 1% battery? We're like, oh, here's how you do it. And we were like the only cats in town who had figured it out for a while. And we were just, I was just like, hey, let's just share knowledge and let's open source our core rendering engine. Next thing you know, we had 500,000 engineers using our open source project. And I was like, you know, me and Mark were like, fuck, like, we don't want to run an open source company. Like, fuck. And then, you know, the board's like, hey, this is great. Let's go in this direction. I'm like, yeah, there's lots of money there. That could be great. I don't want to do that. Not my passion. Maybe a good other startup idea for somebody else. Um, but I was a coward, and I did it. I, I I didn't stay true to my passions, and we did it. We ended up doing it for two years, and we were wildly popular, uh, just like Docker was back in the day. All these things were wildly popular, and we were too. We had a you know our first JavaScript meetup had eight hundred people. Our second had twelve hundred people show up. It was ridiculous. Um, I had I had like engineers on BART asking me for my autograph, and I'm a socially awkward person to begin with. So imagine that scenario. Like I was like, I was like, you have no idea like how I don't feel I should be giving you my signature. Like that's weird. Like I do not deserve this in any way. I like 
And all the while, I'm like, I'm living a lie in my mind. Well, I was going to ask you for a signature on my chest later, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I won't. But it, it, it was, I felt I was living a lie. I was not going after my passion. I was going after the optimum business plan, which mm. eats you alive. And that's why I'm like, that's what I say to my older and younger self. I don't remember which one it was, but both, like, stay true. And I finally got to the point where I'm like, I'm talking with Mark, and we're both. I actually went to Jed and tried to resign. I was like, I'm not your guy. I, I can't, I can't do this open source stuff, you know. And I like broke down, and um, you know, and Jed was just like, stop being a victim and be your own man. And I'm like, well, if I'm my own man, then I'm, I need to pivot back to my passion. I mean, how many founders pivot away and then back? And he's like, I'm not aware of anybody yet. And I'm like, well, I'm a trailblazer. <laughs> um, can I really go back? And it entailed um, going back to the three people that were passionate about the, the design. And so I had 36 employees and we had like 30 hack reactor students in our in our the area the downstairs that you're in now mm. and i uh asked my wife as i always do like can can we think about this and uh the way i think about things is not normal either and that's i travel and i travel uh on the road so we uh, i'm like do you mind if we rent an rv and I, I think I need to drive until I figure this out. And she's like, Tahoe? And I'm like, mm, Baltimore. And she's like, you want me to drive to Baltimore and back so you can figure out if you want to pivot or not. And I'm like, I think two weeks should do it. I think we can do it in two weeks. And uh, so I, I called up our family, who's incredibly a wild family. And I was like, guys, I'm going through this, you know. Um, I timed it so it was during my brother's wedding. It was in Baltimore. And I was like, I'm going through this really rough time. Does anybody want to help it? All the cousins came out. And like my brother-in-law joined in the first leg. And we divided it up into legs. And we had a family member like that joined for the ride all the way around. And and my cousins are brilliant people. And my brother-in-law is brilliant. And I asked their entire advice, you know, all the way through the country. And I came back and I did the unthinkable. I fired everybody. I kicked all the Hacker Actor students out and I eventually took the company down to three people. It was like we went to like 20, then we went to 10, then we went to six, and then I went to three. And TechCrunch, if you go look up the TechCrunch thing, it says we laid off 30% or something. I still remember calling up the reporter, and I was like, you got it all wrong. He's like, no, we have it here. You laid off people. I'm like, no, dude, I fired everybody. (laughs) You underreported it. Accuracy again. And he's like, well, I don't know what to do with that. Normally, people tell me the opposite. No one ever tells me that I underreported a layoff. And I'm like, you did. You missed it. It's a complete reboot. Um, And we rebuilt from the ground up. And um, it was a defining moment in my life. Uh, for me to admit how wrong I was. Um, and I tried to help everybody get jobs, and they were all killer engineers. That literally took like a day for Absolutely. most of them to get jobs. Um, Facebook benefited massively, I think. Um, but I decided not to try to convince any of those engineers who were passionate about open source to have my passion. I just said, I literally lined everybody up, 
just handed them their, you know, pink slips one after another. And Sarah, who you saw upstairs, was the one that did it with me. She went this through through this with me. And you have a quite lively group of folks upstairs now. Yeah. They're super passionate. And now we found people that, you know, when we interview engineers, we're like, what do you think about design? And if they're not like, I'm goo goo for Gaga over design. So we have people from like electronic arts, Autodesk, you know, uh, people for a lot of people from gaming industry interests and things like that. Um, and we are like, you know, in, in, in like the, the Christmas uh, claymation, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, we're like the land of the misfit toys. Like we're all like, just nerdy weird people in weird ways like we argue over the specs of elevators in the city you know uh, you know just any lunchtime you know discussion is like the most weirdest like how to overclock a pc to the absolute max and who's broken records and mark just broke like a record on the internet for the pc he just built you know that's and we we've 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 found our roots now and we're happy and we have like a little tight family that is our own bunch of weirdness and we we love each other's weirdness now and uh it's it's such a diverse group of people too it's like people from russia people from ukraine egypt hungary uh, brazil canada uh iraq like i'm not even sure if we have any americans i think two two or three wow um, and we have a great mixture of men and women uh, as well. And it's not by any sort of design. It's just like this level of weirdness requires a dispersed recruitment effort because it's hard to find our type of weird. Um, so on that, actually, I want to talk about uh, during the Pivot 2.0, if you will, um, you – had enough runway due to the success of the initial to continue on. Yeah. And yeah. you have a pretty unique hiring process. Can you run us through how that unique process has kind of gotten you to such a strong cult-like team here today? Yeah. I mean, like we talked about earlier that culture starts with action, not words. And we say here that, you know, I, I say like I see myself as a servant to the team, not not them as servants to me. And we start that off with the first touch that candidates have with Famous. And what we do is the first interview that any candidate has is with me. And it is not me interviewing them. It is them interviewing me and me attempting to earn my job from them. Uh, Because I believe that choosing a company is a two-way street. And I have to earn my job with them just as much as they earn their job with me. And so we start off with them interviewing me, and it's the the power switch is amazing. Any crazy stories? Well, they they ask. Uh, you can learn so much by what a person asks when you give them the power to. Um, and uh, like there's there's so many things that they end up you end up discovering in those situations. You end up learning who that person is and what they care about, and a lot of times what they fear. Um, especially if they're coming in from out of state and they're like, do you guys have money in the bank? You know, how do you manage money? Do you have, how do you raise money? Like, and they, they're all around, like, am I safe if I come Mm. work here? Um, you know, and they get to ask questions that, that they're, what they're really asking is like, are you a jerk? Are you sexist? Are you this? Are you that? And the, the reaction that I have tells, uh, 
tells all the words that they ever need to know of what type of boss I am because they start to learn like nothing offends me. Like, go, you deserve to ask this because so many employees are mistreated, abused, like whatever. And go please ask me. And if they see my reaction, then they're like, wow, that was not normal of a reaction. Then we start to create trust, which is essential. And then the second part of their interview, if they talk to the other employees, we start with a passion interview and then a cultural interview. Mm. We end on technical interview, but we verify a passion match and cultural match first. That's what, we, and well, we, we verify that I own my job first. And there's some times where I didn't make the interview. And the person's like, yeah, I think you kind of suck. And I don't want to work here. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, fuck, I need to do better on my next interview. Right. And that's happened like once. Okay. Um, but the person's like, yeah, I don't agree with these values that you have. And we literally had uh, some people not agreeing with, with the values that we have. But then most, then a lot of the time in our interview process, we'll find out people aren't like-minded or they're not a cultural match or they're just not passionate about design. And then we don't, we don't bother the engineering team with a technical interview. And then when we do do a technical interview, we walk through code together and we walk through their GitHub code and they tell a story of their code. Then we show them our source code raw. And we're like, tell us what our source code does. And we tell them nothing about the architecture, nothing about the infrastructure. And we're like, how will you figure out, like, try to get your computer up and running with Famous. And there's no install instructions. And we watch them just read through our code because if they can read through the code and tell the narrative that we're trying to tell, that, that's a great start. And then we get into, our, into the code and go deeper. And then we go from there and have a more traditional, deep, technical dive. Mm. Um, and then the other thing we do is we move fast. Uh, so we have a 24-hour turnaround with each touch point they have with the company. So they have the three touch points. Uh, I'm sorry, four. They have three touch points, and 24 hours after each, we tell them if they're still in the running. And so the, I'm the first touch point. The second touch point is actually demo day, where we have our wine tastings and beer tastings, and we share the week's work with each other. We invite them to that because, remember, we're weird. And a lot of us are introverts and we're socially awkward. So we need a little bit of alcohol in us to even talk to even an interview candidate. There'll, there'll be times when an interview candidate comes in and, and we're all just huddled in the corner afraid <laughs> to go talk to them. And I'm like, guys, drink a wine and then get your butts over there and talk to them. And then the, the only questions they have is like, are you a jerk? You know, like, are you nice? Are you going to be nice to me if we work together? Um but after a few wines and things, people loosen up and they get to talking. And oftentimes we'll have candidates that will stay two, three hours. And we got to watch out and not let them get drunk because it's nerve-wracking on them too. And everybody's drinking and you got to be careful with that. But then you open up just a little bit. And where most people fail in the interview process at Famous is at Demo Day. Because the people are like, yeah, that person just isn't, isn't going to fit here. They didn't enjoy our elevator conversation. Mm. They weren't debating over the proper specs, you know, of a hydraulic lift system with us, or they didn't seem interested, you know, stuff like that. Right. Um, and so we try to go two weeks all in, but we are always 24 hours, always telling them, and we don't ever pit engineers against each other and say we're going to choose the best. If we're into somebody and we like them, we go with them. And so it's respect going back to that candidate. Um, uh, and so at the end of that process, then we describe five things that we try to do differently. And I touched on some of these, the, the living wage. Um, 
We uh, have commissions that we pay to engineers. Uh, we uh, we do cost of living increases by the mile in the city. So if people want to move closer so they can walk, we pay them the difference it costs to, to get higher rent to live closer. Um, we check their um, level a month after they join to see if we made a mistake in their level as an engineer. Just as you heard when I leveled Tom Preston Warner, the founder of GitHub, I leveled him at a level two at PowerSet. <laughs> so guess what? It's almost impossible to level an engineer in an interview. But after you work with them for a month, you can. And then we promise that every level three engineer, every level four engineer gets paid exactly the same. You don't need to learn how to negotiate. And again, this is your culture through action bits. And when people hear that we do that, they're just like, the the culture through action is so, so important. And I I get that a lot from Ben Horowitz. I get, I I read a lot and follow a lot. He's, He's a very big, I've never met him. He doesn't know who I am from Adam, but he's a big influencer on me. Mm. Can you walk us through the various stages of, of, of raising funding and, and what your tactics have been with Famous? Uh, some of the things that have worked well and some of the things that haven't worked out quite as well. Um, things, that, things that work well are just making sure you have momentum, like I mentioned before. All the things like, like great demo, great traction, and great support before you ever go to a meeting. Things that don't work well. Sometimes you'll get existing investors say, meet my other investor. Be careful of that. Um, Because, again, just a simple rule. Don't go to an investor unless you pretty much know they're going to say yes, like you've got every duck in a row. But if you're going to meet an investor just because you have the opportunity of meeting an investor, be careful about asking for money. Uh, This is the ask for advice, don't ask for money situation. But if you feel like... And this is one thing I've, I've also learned. When I say um, – so let me actually turn this interview around and ask you guys a question. When I say make sure that you think you're going to get funding, what percentage do you think I think I'm talking about? Percentage of our ask? No. Uh, when I say make sure you think you're going to get a yes, what percentage surety do you think I'm talking about? I'd say as much as possible. <laughs> as close to 100 as you can get. Yeah, I've talked to people about this, and I'm like, uh, if I'm 80% sure, that's what I think you're saying to me. Think and I'm like, no, out. I'm like 97%. Yeah. Like, it, it has to be the exception that they would say no. Otherwise, I, I, just, I would just be very careful about asking for money. Um, now that, I will, I will say there's exceptions to that, especially in later stage funding where you need to build a relationship. So I'm raising Series C right now, and I'm not asking for any money, but I sure am building relationships. And what, what are some things that you're doing to build the relationships besides tea and coffee? I mean, are you having dinners uh, and deep conversations about philosophy? I mean, what are your tactics? Uh, no dinners. Um, I, I, I target a VC that I want to raise money with because I think they're going to be the perfect partner. So I went in my space of the design space. And I said, who are the top VCs in that space that that I think are the best VCs in the world? And I'm like, who hasn't placed their bets yet? And that's my world of my tier one best choices. So let's imagine there's three of those in my world. Then I I figure out, well, what partner do I want to talk to in that fund? And it's got to be a high-ranking partner, really high, like really high, if not founding general partner. Then I find a way to get to that person through a trusted voice. Um, 
So I, I just got to get introduced to one of the VCs that's my target, and I called up a former PowerSet employee that was a founder that got funded by that guy, and I said, hey, can you do me a solid and do me an introduction, not looking for you to like represent that I have anything of value, just that you know me from PowerSet. And he did, and that partner took the meeting, and then I said, look, I'm not raising money now. I'm going to be raising money in a year but it's going to take a year to get to know you. So can I start to meet your team? Not even you. Don't want to waste your time, but can I meet your team and start giving them monthly written updates? And that is what I've been doing with the top three VCs is every month I give them like a three-page update on exactly where we are, and then they critique me saying, you, know, you really should be doing this. Your cost of acquisition should really be around this number. You know, I would be impressed if you hit these KPIs. And you start getting the picture around, like, what are your goals? Yeah. And, and so I'm with, like, with one of my VCs, I have t- five top KPIs I've worked out with that VC that we really want to hit, and I've already hit four of them. And so I know I need to hit the fifth one, and it's the hardest one. Mm. Um, but I know what it is. Um, and it's because we've started building a relationship. Um, and so I feel like I can freely email that team at those VCs and give them updates. Um, and they feel free to let me know what's good and what's bad about my update. And it, it really helps you get a reality picture, a reality check on where you are. And I've yet to ask for a single dime from any of them. Um, and, 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 and when I go to pitch in the Monday Partners meeting at any of those VCs, I will know I'm already at a yes. Yeah. And I won't pitch the three VCs against each other. I will pick one. If all three want me, I will pick one and I will only go with that one because that's what you do if you're actually looking to create loyalty in a relationship. Let's zoom back up just a little bit uh, to product and switching back to famous. Uh, Steve, what would your outlook be on the competitive space with other tools such as Sketch with plugins, Figma, et cetera? And just kind of the competitive space that is around these, you know, like high, like high-end design. Yeah, I mean, the design space is bubbling and it's awesome. And, and like Figma has like collaboration for enterprise. That's sort of their area for design. Um, Sketch is trying to reinvent itself uh, a little bit right now with Big funding time. from Benchmark. Um, you know, Figma has funding from uh, uh, Greylock. It has funding from Kleiner. It has... Uh, uh, I think Excel is the other one. I uh, can't remember the third one. Um, you have Canva uh, that is, a, you know, coming in from a very different angle from from what we call uh, remixers and curators standpoint. Your casual creatives, I don't look at them as competitors. I mean, mm-hmm. like I, I I laugh when people say, "What do you think of your competitors?" and they want me to do some rousing hatred story <laughs> of how we're going to destroy them. They're my brothers in arms. Like they think like they're like me. They're excited about design and they're founders. So I like them. I like I have a natural affinity with all these people. And I'm like just nothing but happy for them. Now, we all have different perspectives. Um, You know, Famous's thing is we're live from the get-go. That's how we differentiate. And we're super high-end with everything that we do. So that's how we differentiate. Um, uh, Canva, you know, is a is a wonderful introduction for many people into the design space and they have 50,000 unique templates to choose from. We're going in a different direction. We're going to have, of course, with my background, semantically tagged templates that are built through AI and machine learning. 
you know, that use 3D physics to whiz around. You know, that's my jam. Uh, Figma's collaboration and design, you know, Sketch is trying to move. Well, frankly, I don't know exactly where Sketch is trying to move. It seems to break a lot on me these days because I know they're replatforming, but I think they're trying to go towards prototyping and things like that. And Adobe has XD. You know, Adobe's trying to do new things. Um, there's Unreal 4 Engine, which I follow real closely. There's Unity 3D, which I follow real closely. Yeah. Uh, and I, my only comment would be, like, I don't, I really try to be unique and have my own voice, and you know, I try to make the world a more beautiful place with my own jam. And if people like that and they want to get on board with that, they can. And if Canva's successful, it makes me successful. Like when I hear Canva's valuation, I'm like, go get them. Yeah. Because that'll, that'll increase my valuation when I succeed. Um, if Figma does well, that helps me do well. If all of your brethren competitors are doing poorly, that means your entire market space sucks. So I want them to do well. You know, I get a, I, like when I say Sketch, I don't know what Sketch is doing right now. It's because I'm worried about them. I mean, I want them to do well. And I'm like, they only raised a little bit of money from Benchmark. It wasn't a lot. And I I use Sketch every day, and it's breaking on me a lot. And so I'm like, I almost want to help them. You know, like, how can I help? How can I be here? Like, I don't know, because I use Sketch every day. Um, You know, Adobe, like the, the, the launch of XD, you know, was... A tough launch and they've really recovered since and started to really gain ground and i'm i just you know i'm friends with the head of adobe xd and i'm like go paul go like what like i get excited when i talk to them um my enemy is complacency my enemy is people who don't care about quality my enemy is people who don't yeah i guess my enemy my my antagonist is people who don't care about design Uh, i care deeply about good design um so it's weird. Like I, I remember my first startup, I was hating my competitors and I give rousing speeches to my employees like, let's kill them. And I'm like, and now I'm like, that was dumb. Yeah. Um, uh, th- there are people just like me that enjoy good design. Like I hear the, the founder of Canva speak and I'm like, nailed it. Like she nailed it. I'm like, I think the same way she does. She's probably the closest of any of the founders uh, that I hear speaking where I'm just like, I totally agree with, like, pretty much everything she's saying. You know, I have a different perspective. And perspective is your real competitive weapon, not tech. It's the way you look at the world that's that's your actual competitive weapon. Yeah, and it shines through the product through and through because, I mean, here even at Dimension Software, everything that we've been able to build with Famous, I mean, it just sparkles and dazzles, and it's so well, smooth. Thank you for that commercial endorsement. People are very <laughs> impressed. And on that note, can you give the elevator pitch for what Famous Studios is to the listeners who maybe aren't as technical? Yeah, I mean, imagine that there was a tool that is as easy to use as, like, Microsoft Word or, or Keynote or PowerPoint. But it allowed you to build mobile apps. It allowed you to uh, build m- mobile websites, allowed you to build uh, Instagram stories, it allowed you to do videos. Um, so you wouldn't have to learn, you know, if, if any of you have ever opened up Photoshop and seen the thousand buttons and, and then you have the thousand button stare. If you've opened up Illustrator and you're like, what the F is a vector, Victor? You know, Isn't that the truth? <laughs> the twinkie shitting anxiety sets in. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I am the guy that like, oh, I opened up After Effects because I was like, I'm going to do some After Effects because I watched some YouTube videos and got super, you know, confident. Oh, fuck, yeah. And then I opened <laughs> it up and I'm this. like, and I'm like, where's like file new? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and then like, you know, I, I'm usually the crazy guy that barrels through the tutorials and makes it to the end. And I have made it to the end of all these tutorials. And I, now I can do amazing things in those products. What's and I'm just point? like, <laughs> I'm like, who the F wants to do that? Like, I'm a masochist. So I do it, of course. But like, you know, what it is, is that um, people's taste uh, can be very high. You can know what good looks like, but your skill set rarely matches your taste. So you can know what a good photo looks like, but you may not know how to wield a camera. Mm-hmm. You, you can know what good design looks like, but you may not be able to how to open up Photoshop and do a damn thing. And this is true in almost every artistic product that exists. So I do my music production as well. But Jesus, the, the number of tutorials I've had to go through to learn how to do what I do now, I'm like... That would have been my alternative is to make that easier. Like, how could I fi- score a film like Hans Zimmer with a tool that's as easy as, as Keynote? That would have been my other idea and still might be something I eventually do. So I'm the crazy person that does do all the crazy tutorials and does spend the 2,000 hours and the 10,000 hours to become a master at it. But I truly believe there's people with absolutely stunning taste who feel trapped and they they want a bridge between what's in their head and what they can create. And I and Famous is that bridge. So you get into Famous. We test with 18-year-olds with no description of what how it works. And we're like, go create a mobile app that works on your phone. And we tell them, well, there's no tutorials, nothing. And we're like, just figure it out by clicking around. And if you can't figure it out by clicking around, then we fail. And that's what we always test on. And so you will be able to create mobile apps. You will be able to create videos. You will be able to create um, VR, AR. You'll be able to create Instagram stories. All the cool stuff that people want to put on the Internet, we are finding how to make that easy and fun. And right now all we have is, and I say all, um, but you can make mobile apps, mobile experience, websites, anything like that. Um, And we're about to announce we're replacing Keynote and PowerPoint itself. Um, wow. And we're about to announce that we can, you can with one click import every PowerPoint on your hard drive into Famous, store it in the cloud, and convert it to Famous in real time. Oh, that's incredible. And so we're trying to make design easy, but keep your taste high, equivalent to what's in your, in your imagination. And the things we're about to launch, like we've been working on for years, we... Um, uh, we're up about to uh, announce this thing that we call Famous Cloud, but normally when you publish something to the internet, you have to hit publish. You mm-hmm. know, if you think Wix or Squarespace, you hit the publish button, it you get spinny thing, <laughs> and then it goes to <laughs> their crappy domain, and then you're like, wait a minute, how do I get this on my domain? And then you learn something called a C name change, and then you shit a Twinkie over that. You know. <laughs> And I've had we, two in this interview already. We've now, uh, and we're releasing it this Monday, um, figured out how to publish in real time. So wow. there is no save. There is no publish. It just is as you type publishing um, and you either make it private or public. Is that in any way based on how it sort of like loosely syncs up in the dev mode? Yeah. Um, so we have a thing called live preview where you can actually put it on your phone 
or on your iPad or on your computer and then design live. Yes. Um, we took that mode and that was a one-to-one connection. Um, we had to make that work for a million users simultaneously um, or many millions. Mm. And we figured out how to do it. Oh, I see. Okay, that's astonishing. Yeah, we um, we cried a lot during <laughs> figuring out how to do that. <laughs> And then we're launching a thing we call Asset Bar. Um, so we want you to be able to drag and drop in photos and videos and anything uh, in real time as well that are actually preconditioned to already be pre-filtered and themed to whatever your theme is that you're in. And so we're getting ready to um, – I can't give the details, but we're getting ready to announce an incredibly exciting partnership with Getty. Oh, wow. Most, most average humans can't afford getty content yes and we will now um so we're going to make that accessible and then we're launching uh something we call magic bar so imagine every effect that you can do in photoshop and after effect has been boiled down to about 26 buttons and you hit one button and what it's really doing is about four hours worth of after effects work and letting you see the results. So think of Instagram filters was a prehistoric version and magic bar is like booyah. Right. You know? And so, and then what's genius in the middle of all that is our theming and templating system. So if you have a theme or template, we call it one of our themes and templates called Froze all day. Um, and it's a pink theme, um, but it's uh, a lifestyle theme. And, and, Everything that you do automatically rejiggers itself to your theme. So the notion of a style guide has we've hit the turbo button on it. So your even your 3D physics engine adapts to your theme. Even every one of your effects filters automatically modifies almost like a color imprint inside of Lightroom. Wow. Um, so these are very super hot. What we're doing is taking the techniques that the super high-end pros yeah. use. You saw Mike. He came down here. We're literally a machine learning Mike. Um, and so, so you ev- can fire him, right? Uh, <laughs> we have a lot to learn. Uh, there's a lot of Mike to learn from. I'm sure. Um, and um, it's all about taking something that used to take three hours and a thousand clicks and like uh, uh, um, a lot of tutorials to learn. And being a curator and saying, oh, I'm going to click this button and see what it does. And you're like, amazing. And you're like, click one. And then you get done. And you're curating instead of creating from scratch. And that's an important notion in what we do. And the end-all, be-all is that it empowers people. And you know, because we're so cheap, uh, we have a free product and we're coming out with a $12.95 a month product. And we work in a browser. It is amazing to, to, to talk to people in, like, India that have a career because of us. And, and, and that's why we're getting so many more people using Famous than we ever thought, like people in Eastern Europe, people in Brazil, people in China, people, like, all over the world that couldn't afford Adobe, didn't have, like, like got scared of all the buttons in Photoshop, even yeah. if they could afford it. And they look at Famous, and they're just like, I've been playing with this free thing for 10 minutes and I just blew my own mind away Um, and we get customer calls because I do at least one a week where like some 19 year old kid is like I just won a major contract with Adidas like I pitched them with Famous and I freaking won and then they, they pay me to like deliver and I'm like no I'm already done 
And they're like, I already, what I showed you is the finished product. And, and then Adidas is like, what the F are you talking about? Don't we need coders to like code up this fake prototype? That's incredible. And then people are like, it's not a fake prototype. It is real. Here's your URL. Now pay me the $25,000. Right. And, you know, I do these videos of taking a project that took $300,000 and I do it and I, and I challenge myself to finish it in under two minutes in Famous. And I got in a lot of trouble on one of them with Starbucks. Um, but it's, it's, I love seeing that disruption, that change. And that's what Famous is all about is making great design easy and empowering and giving people, like imagine you had taste, but you didn't want to learn those thousand buttons. And now you have something. You, you could live a different life as a result. You could have a different career. You could be independent in a way that you never were before. And when I talk to people, I just, that's when I shit a good Twinkie, you know. And that's, that's the magic of uh, what, I, what, I, what I love. We're going to definitely be excited to keep in touch with you and the famous journey. And we'll be linking all the famous information to our users and anyone listening that would be interested in using a tool like this. Um, extremely impactful and very, very awesome. So uh, we know this from firsthand. It's uh, a front-facing aspect of Dimension Software's business. You know, you hit the link on our phones, scan our QR code, and takes you to our famous, uh, beautiful rendering of famous of uh, Dimension Software. And it's just, it's, it's a very impactful tool, uh, creates a lot of excitement. We've noticed that with mm-hmm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be definitely continuing to use it cool. uh, over the other products. Yeah, um, congratulations on all those congratulations. announcements. And then yeah. one last topic that we'd like to get your your thoughts on pick your brain dry as you said is uh, psychedelics real quick mm-hmm. it's a little twist tim ferris as you know and probably have heard of around this area he's been very openly spoken about his use in microdosing, and he's actually even gotten funding to open up kind of the first psychedelic research center uh helping trying to cure treatments for tbi traumatic brain injuries ptsd and just overall biohacking in a way uh what are your thoughts on on microdosing and especially being in in silicon valley here it's it's uh been widely known to be used in in uh, high performers and billionaires and things like that so wondering if you've tried it or experimented or had people around you that have and what are your thoughts on it i think that that it's it's no different than anything else in the space of being an explorer, a learner, a trier of of new things. And um, you know, I always uh, say that there's there's danger in doing that. There's risk, and there's 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 potentially mistakes that you could make. Um, but like I say to everyone upstairs all the times, like I'd rather be on stage throwing up than be sitting in the audience any day of the week. And so when when Tim Ferriss is talking about things like that, he's just talking about saying let's let's evolve, let's learn, let's let's try something new, let's not uh, like have have opinions on something without data. You know, he's always about gathering data and relentlessly gathering data. Uh, and sometimes he he falls on his face while trying to gather data, but he gathered the data and then he learns from it. And so. Can we open up new pathways in our brains? Can we can we learn about our brains in ways that we have never learned before? Um, sure. Uh, why wouldn't we be able to? Uh, like like my co-founder always says, why not? 
is there any reason not to try to do this? Um, and, you know, for me, uh, any type of microdosing, I would only apply that to music. And, you know, imagine if I was in uh, uh, some of my uh, music is sort of like uh, Radiohead meets a full orchestra. Mm. Uh, and in those moments, uh, I'd like I'd, I would be fascinated to see uh, what happens because a lot of my music is incredibly mathematical. And um, I know that if I get um, drunk or or my mind is my social anxiety goes away, my math brain actually excels dramatically because mm. uh, I, I was a math nut early on and so I, I think that it's it's all on these I'd rather be on stage uh, throwing up than sitting in the audience watching the show I'd, I'd rather be the show and I think Tim is saying he, he wants he wants to learn in this area he's always experimenting with his own body or mind absolutely um, and I just see him as an explorer and a learner and just as perhaps you know to uh, many people a misfit as I am you know, like we're we, you know, people that think that way are generally misfits to people who drive Hondas. Um, you know, I don't drive a Honda. You know, uh, uh, I'll, I'll I'll drive a self-driving flying helicopter slash motorcycle, um, and probably wreck into the water and maybe die, but I'd rather do that. Um, and I think that's where Tim's going with that. And would I do it myself personally? Um, if Tim had data uh, on it that made me interested then yeah but I'll let him be the explorer on that and just like I don't know if he would uh, uh, put himself in the position of building design software solid last bit of advice to end and wrap this lengthy conversation up and we really appreciate your time and, and effort you know and, and sharing all these valuable insights to to us and to everyone that will be listening to this um, imagine that you're early in your startup career and you have all of the tough situations and moments ahead of you you know what what advice would you give that young entrepreneur that young Steve of or anyone else that's out there wanting to start a business or currently doing so in a weird position, what wisdom would you shed and light on the right direction to be taking in this very moment? You know, I think that um, one of the things that uh, I asked my co-founder, because he's a real young guy when, he, when we started, he was, hadn't graduated yet, undergrad. Uh, but about four years in, I'm like, Mark, uh, what do you think? You know, you're a young kid out of US, UC Berkeley. Like, we're valued over $100 million. Like, and Mark, uh, like me, and, and he's on a different part of it, but he's on the spectrum, you know, and he's got his own things, and we both love our own weirdness. And, uh, and Mark's very accurate in anything he says. And, and what he said to me is like, he said, my confidence in myself has remained constant and while I've met some of the biggest luminaries in the world, my confidence in the rest of the world has declined precipitous, precipitously. And it just cracks me up because the real road to 
learning and, and growing and and succeeding is an inward journey, not an outward one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as you meet these famous founders and famous VCs, and if you look at them and say, like, they're amazing, they're great, I'm going to listen to them, um, don't. Don't even listen to me in some ways. If it doesn't ring true, like, to your innards, then fuck it. Like, do your own thing. Like, there could be stuff I'm saying that people are like, that fucking, I don't like that at all. So, and and if you hear me say something and you're, it's, it's maybe you're just like, well, I don't think that way, but I guess that's true. No. And, and if you can be your own unique voice, that's the key to be true to yourself and that's the key to happiness and it's also the key to excelling in your company because then you'll try harder you're able to take pain harder you're able to go through tough times much more if it's meaningful to you and only you so don't try to impress other people and don't be impressed by uh, people from Harvard or people from fancy named VCs be impressed by data be impressed by your own passion and your own ability to stay true even when the world is pushing you around and trying to make you go where they want you to go um and you know i always uh rest at night uh and i and whenever i'm i'm you know trying to remind myself of my accomplishments all i have to do is say to myself is like i could die now and i'm kind of happy but if you say to yourself, if I died right now, would I have unfinished business? Mm-hmm. Then you're not living right because you should have all your business finished at all times. And if you have stuff lying out there where it's unfinished, it's almost always because you're not being true to yourself. Um, so for, for those young people that are like trying to create a startup, be unafraid of failure in the eyes of others and be very afraid of failure in the eyes of yourself. Because uh, if you fail yourself and you're not true to yourself, then, like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, don't try to be rich. Don't have a goal of being rich. Um, have a goal of, you know, the work is the, is the reward. Uh, and uh, that'll, that'll bring you a lot more happiness than having visions of driving a Porsche, having visions of being a baller and people looking up to you about how much money you have or buying some ginormous freaking house. Um, you know, value your success based on how high you help others rise, not how you help yourself rise. And your own intrinsic value to yourself will be your your reward. Amen to that. He's a man made of pure grit. He's introspective, wise, in which has made him dangerously effective leader. He's created the Internet 3.0. There are dreamers and there are doers, ladies and gentlemen. He is both and much, much more. Steve, thanks for coming on the show and having us here at your famous studios in San Francisco. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to do it. And uh, hope hope, hope uh, some people got some good stuff out of this. Thank you for all the delicious software. And please, if you like what we're producing, smash that subscribe button, leave a rating and a comment. And if you don't, do similarly. We want honest feedback because at the end of the day, we're here to produce the best show possible for you, our listeners. I'm your host, Ben, and this is Call to Action Podcast Command Q.